Usually I try to begin a sermon with an illustration that ties into the main idea of the sermon. It might be a personal story. It might be a current news event, something from history and so on. The illustration hopefully draws in the listener and then they are engaged with hearing about the main idea from the passage. But this week, there is no illustration. No illustration. You say, well, were you out enjoying the weather yesterday? You just ran out of time. No? No, that wasn't the case. We're going to cover four Beatitudes with four different topics this morning. So there is no one main idea. It's kind of hard to illustrate four main ideas all at once. So with that said, skipping right ahead, Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And while you do so, let me briefly recap what we did last week as we began our series on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. What an incredible passage the Sermon on the Mount is, a majestic passage, the clearest summation from Christ of what it means to follow Him. If you will faithfully hear these words over the next few months and apply them in your life, you will see Christ differently and you will experience great spiritual growth. You want that to happen in your life? The Sermon on the Mount will do it. Guaranteed. Last week we gave some background information about this text. I shared how this text has left an incredible imprint on the church through the ages. We also discussed the purpose of the sermon, that it describes the character and the conduct of all Christians. Do you guys remember that from last week? That the Sermon on the Mount is not just for an elite set of Christians, but it is for every single person who follows Christ. It is challenging. You will be stretched. At the end of this sermon series, you might have grown four or five inches or something You are going to be stretched by Jesus' words. They are not easy, but it is what God wants from his people. We also saw the structure of the sermon. Uh, In your bulletin, you'll notice an insert that we had last time. So I put it again in case you missed it. The Sermon on the Mount is not just a collection of different topics that Jesus does. It really don't have a co cogency to it, but there's a clear structure, and I want you to see that structure, how it all fits together, so you can also be following along and reading along, so that when you come here on Sunday morning, you've already had these things percolating in your mind, and you'll get a whole lot more out of it than if you come in cold turkey. Now, as you see from that outline, Jesus begins the sermon with what are commonly called what? The Beatitudes. The word beatitude comes from a Latin word, beatissement, blessed or happy. These are a series of statements that form the introduction, the core of the introduction there. What does it mean to say a person is blessed? It means that God has given them favor. And again, this is for all of God's people, not just a certain group. This isn't like some of the beatitudes apply to this person and not that. This is for all of God's people. With each beatitude, there's a different characteristic of God's people, and then a blessing. Last week, we explored the first beatitude found in verse 3. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A characteristic of Jesus' disciples is that we are not proud in spirit. We are poor in spirit. Meaning that we have a complete reliance and trust in God, not ourselves. We, are, we owe our very existence to God, and certainly we owe our salvation to what Jesus did for us on the cross. We do not earn it. We simply receive it. Amen? So what is the blessing for those who are poor in spirit? Jesus says we receive the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus inaugurated into this world by bringing this promise of redemption, of forgiveness of sins, eternal life, peace with God. We receive it now, and then, praise God, we receive the fullness of it when he returns in glory one day and gives us resurrection, immortal bodies, and a new creation, a new earth. So, that was the first beatitude, and it flows then right into where we pick up today. The second beatitude. Verse 4. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the characteristic of the followers of Christ is that we mourn. Now to clarify, this is not a personality issue. This is not speaking about someone who is always sad, or that God is calling us to walk around all day with tissues in our pockets, and we're crying about this and crying about that. It's not a personality thing. Rather, it's a grieving over sin. Sin should bother a follower of Christ, because sin destroys people and relationship. Sin ruptures our fellowship with God, and God hates sin so much that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our what? Sins. So being more specific, as we look around us, we should mourn over the sin of the world. Things are not the way they are supposed to be in so many ways. We should mourn over the spiritual decay that we see in our nation. The people are more interested in hobbies and sports and TV shows and etc. than knowing the living God. We should mourn over the culture and the media that promotes such spiritual decay with violence and sensuality and irreverence, like, like the, the recent movie that depicts Jesus Christ as a homosexual. We should mourn over 60 million aborted human beings since 1973. We should mourn over the destruction of the family that has de devastated so many people. Now, Christians... As Christians, it seems that we're pretty good and experienced at, at least some of us, at sharing the things that we're frustrated about, right? We see these things and we voice our disapproval in our comments and in social media and so forth. And I have no problem in doing that sometimes. But are we also mourning over these things? 
Or are we just expressing our anger? You see, we need a balance of both. Jesus comes along and he gives these heavy condemnations to the Jewish religious leaders in Matthew 23. Exposes their hypocrisy. Exposes their unbelief. And then he sees the city and he weeps over the city. He weeps. We should weep over the sin of the world. That is what a follower of Christ should do. And we should mourn over our sin. And I mean actually mourn. Not just a a momentary sense of disappointment in ourselves and then boom, we're bouncing right back into life to recognize that your sin offends a holy, righteous God and to not make excuses for our sin. To think about the various ways that our sin should cause us to mourn. To think about as a spouse how you can hurt and do hurt your significant other. How you seek your own interests and you love your spouse as long as they're meeting your needs, but not if they're you know, somehow disappointing you, and we're supposed to love the way we are called to love sacrificially. Husband, do you mourn over the fact that your pornography addiction is crushing your wife? Wife, do you mourn over the fact that your words are demeaning your husband and he's lost confidence in who he is because he's being torn down? As a parent, do you realize your sin has, has hurt your children? You've spoken harsh, belittling words to them. You spend way too much time on your TV and your phone and your laptop than spending time with your kids. As a child, your sin has hurt your parents. You don't show them the honor that you should show that the fifth commandment says to honor your father and your mother. You rarely thank them for the sacrifices on your behalf. That food just doesn't fall out of the sky that lands on the plate in front of you. Likewise, you spend too much time on electronics than time with your parents or your siblings. As a Christian in general, our sin hurts the cause of the gospel and makes it less appealing to neighbors and co-workers. The church should mourn over its own Sin. Psalm 119, verse 136 says, my eyes, stream, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. What if the world saw the church broken over its sin? I think the church would explode because 
people in the world, they know they sin and they suppress it and they don't really, they would like to do something with it and they walk around in their lives and, and they want to have some way of getting rid of it and, and to have some peace, but they don't know what to do about it and they walk around and they see Christians and we pretend like we have it all together, don't we? Instead of being broken ourselves and saying, hey, look, you know, I was in the same boat. I'm just a spiritual beggar, poor in spirit like you, but I found a Savior who will come and He will take away all of that stuff. He'll give you peace. To see the church, when we gather, that it's like a, a spiritual landfill. People coming in and just saying, I'm dumping this garbage in my life. And I'm being freed of this stuff. Instead of coming in and pretending we got it all together and we leave, we're just the same. People would be drawn to that. It wouldn't be easy, would it? It would be certainly not great for your reputation, perhaps, but the people of the world would be drawn to it because they're looking for that. I told you you're going to get stretched. What is the blessing for those who mourn? You shall be comforted. By who? Well, it doesn't say, but it's clearly God, isn't it? Greek grammarians point out that this is called a divine passive. It's a, it's a subtle way of putting the emphasis actually by making it passive to show that it's God that does it. God is the one who gives you that comfort. He comforts you. How does he do so? I think of two Ps, the pardon of God. He forgives our sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God cleanses us. And then the promises of God. God has made tremendous promises about the future. One of them is that he is going to take away all mourning. All mourning. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The promises of God will bring you comfort in the midst of your mourning. So let me encourage you to seek God in the midst of sadness, perhaps, in your lifetime. He is the one to go to. He is the source. We often chase after things like food and drugs and alcohol and pleasure and so forth, thinking that that will get rid of this mourning in our lives. All it does is just kind of deal with the outward symptoms, but it doesn't deal with the root. Only God can touch the human heart and bring a sense of comfort. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How's everybody doing so far? Verse 5, Jesus gives that third beatitude. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. With this beatitude, the characteristic of the followers of Christ is that we are meek. Now, in our culture, when, he, when we hear the word meek, we associate that with weakness, don't we? Someone has joked that meek people interpret this verse to mean, quote, the meek shall inherit the earth. If that's okay with everybody... But that's not what the biblical word meek means. 
Meekness means that you have a humble, accurate view of yourself. The standard biblical Greek dictionary says this word means, quote, not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. So meekness is a good thing. Jesus was meek, not weak. He says of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, that he is gentle, it's the exact same Greek word, and lowly in heart. Now, to be meek, there's a tension that you should feel as a Christian. On one hand, you, you don't denigrate yourself because you're made in God's image. You have incredible worth and value because each person is made in God's image. You have come to know the Lord. You have promises given to you. You are a child of the King. There is no reason to denigrate yourself. But on the other hand, you don't think too highly about yourself or you shouldn't too freak, think too, too frequently about yourself. You realize that you are absolutely nothing compared to God. Remember what we just sang. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And so this view of God affects how we view others. It's been said the person who looks up to God rarely looks down on others. We're all made in God's image, and so we don't look down on other people. You realize that apart from God's grace that we would all be nothing. So we need this meekness because our pride is easily tempted by the devil to think more of ourselves than we should. The writer of that song, Amazing Grace, was a guy by the name of John Newton. He was a slave trader who, after his conversion, became an evangelist, pastor, and abolitionist. Once Newton was praised for his accomplishments by this other person, and you know what John Newton said in response? Sir, the devil already told me that. That's a great line, isn't it? Meekness means a humble, accurate view of yourself. A.W. Tozer wrote these wonderful words. The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority, Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. So what's the blessing for the meek? They will inherit the earth. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting. In Psalm 37, verse 11, it says, The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, in the Old Testament, that promise meant that the meek would inherit the land of Israel. As I mentioned last week, Matthew portrays Jesus as this new and greater Moses. So this promise about inheriting the land, Jesus comes along and he expands and fulfills this promise to include the whole earth. At the end of Matthew, what does Jesus tell the disciples? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? And so you are to go and make disciples of all the earth, right? Of all nations. Paul echoes this in Romans 4, 13. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Did you catch that? 
the promise to Abraham for the whole world. So Scripture promises that Christ will make a new creation, a new earth, and we are going to inherit that. And there's no inheritance tax. So it's all ours. What a glorious vision of the afterlife. Do you appreciate that sometimes? We, I hope, you, you know, for the folks who did the life group on Thursday night, we talked about Christ and the different religions. What a view of the afterlife that Jesus paints in contrast to other views. The biblical vision is not extinction like atheism. The biblical vision is not this impersonal existence like Buddhism. But it's a flesh, spirit, body on a new earth that we inherit. That should make us very excited. Amen? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We're halfway home. In verse 6, Jesus gives us the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. With this beatitude, the characteristic is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That word righteousness is super important for the Sermon on the Mount. And you, when you go a little bit further in verse 17 to 20, it's really kind of the key to the whole passage because Jesus says, look, if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So we need to know what he's talking about when he says righteousness. The word righteous can mean different things in the Bible. has a broad range of meaning. Paul will use it a lot of times to speak of the fact that in Apart from Christ, we have no righteousness of ourselves because we're sinners, right? He says in Romans 3.10 that there is none, none is righteous, no, not one. So we need the righteousness of Christ that is given to us as a gift of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 declares, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this imputed righteousness, meaning righteousness that is given to us. We don't earn it, but it comes as a gift as a result of trusting in Christ. Righteousness can also refer to practical righteousness as we live out what has been given to us. Does that make sense? We are seen by God as righteous because of Christ, but then we are to live it out, growing in our character as believers. Otherwise, it makes no sense to say we should hunger and thirst for righteousness if he's talking about the righteousness of Christ already given to us. We are to grow in what we've already been given. Does that make sense? And we should really hunger and thirst for it. We are to become like Christ who was righteous, perfectly righteous. You know, that is what a disciple is, right? A disciple seeks to become like the teacher, And Jesus is our teacher. And he says in Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, we will not become sinless in this lifetime. That's not the expectation. But we should have a burning hunger and zeal to hunger and thirst for this to become true in our lives. That we would want righteousness Not to become righteous so that we avoid just simply the wrath of God. Not to to look righteous so people will pat us on the back and say, oh, he's really a great guy. No, we want righteousness just for the simple fact that we want righteousness. 
that we're righteous even when no one's looking. Here's a dangerous question to ask around lunchtime. Have you ever been hungry? Really hungry? Really, really hungry? If that has ever happened to you, what do you think about? You think about food, don't you? That is what's on your mind. And pretty much nothing else. When I have fasted for extended times, anything sounds good. I look at just a glass of orange juice, and I'm ready to get my wallet out and just be like, man, what can I pay for that? I mean, it looks so amazing just to have a sip of that. Oh, there's some scraps left from last night's dinner. Man, they look so good. You hunger and thirst for that food. I remember one time when Angela and I did an extended fast, and we just sat around and had this long conversation about all the different kinds of foods that we were thinking about and wanting to eat. It was like daydreaming. God wants us to have that same type of hunger for righteousness. Jesus will say in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You say, what does that look like? Well, stick around for these next few weeks because Jesus is going to tell us what does it look like to be righteous in all of life. By the way, this hunger for righteousness is a great litmus test to know that you you truly know Christ. If someone asks you, because everybody says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but if someone asks you, why? Are you a Christian? How do you know that you are a Christian? A great litmus test is, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? See, there's a lot of things that we point to. I was confirmed. I was baptized. I attend church regularly. I prayed a sinner's prayer. All of those things are wonderful in and of themselves, but none of them indicate that you have a righteous hunger. You see, before I came to know Christ, I didn't hunger for righteousness. You know what I hungered for? To make myself happy, to please myself. I wasn't a terrible person, but that was, that's how people operate. But when you come to know Christ by the power of God, he gives you a new mindset, doesn't he? That you want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Famous pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said, quote, I do not know of a better test than any that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain that you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations again. So what is the blessing for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it say there? You shall be satisfied. God will fill you with righteousness. And here's the thing, since God is infinitely righteous, there's always more for us to grow in, right? He will continually fill you as you try to become like him. You'll never reach that limit. But God wants us to grow. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then lastly, the last beatitude for our time today, 
In verse 7, Jesus gives this fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, in Scripture, mercy is often spoken about a person's suffering, and someone shows mercy by alleviating their suffering. For example, in Mark 10, 47, a blind beggar called out to Jesus and said, Have mercy on me. So as followers of Christ, we should be merciful. We should want to help people when they suffer. And yes, people who have made sinful choices in life, we still should want to help them. Amen? We shouldn't just say, well, they got what they deserved. Do we want to live that way in our lives? Would we want to stand before God and say, God, I want you to give me exactly what I deserved? So a Christian can help someone even when they don't agree with their choices. We should still uphold justice, but not in a callous and hard-hearted way. So how do we show mercy? Well, Scripture tells us to help others in practical ways, to give them maybe financial need, assistance if they're in need, to give them a ride, make a meal, and so forth. Scripture also tells us to forgive others as an act of mercy. You see, when someone has wronged us, they often will be tormented by what they have done against us, and they need their suffering alleviated by us extending forgiveness. Do you see that? And so Jesus tells us in a wonderful parable in Matthew 18 about a man who had accumulated this incredible debt for a king, before a king, an unpayable debt. He calls in the servant, the king does, and at first he was going to have him pay off the debt in debtor's prison, but then he decides to wipe away this entire debt that this man owed. Amazing. The man then goes out and finds a fellow servant who owed him a small amount, jumps on top of him and says, pay me what you owe me. King hears about it, brings in the servant, and this is what he says to him. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? We are to have mercy on those who need to be forgiven and not hold it over their heads. Just as the king forgave the servant, God has forgiven us. We too should forgive others. So what's the blessing for the merciful? It says they shall receive mercy. Now to clarify, again, you, don't, you receive salvation as a gift. It's not something you earn by being a merciful person. Is that clear? But once you have received salvation, once you've been forgiven much by the Lord, then you have a heart that wants to forgive other people and to show them mercy and to see situations where, yes, they have made bad choices. And I don't agree with what they did over here, but I see a fellow human being in a place of suffering. I want to have mercy on them. And so if we give mercy, what is, what is the expectation in return? We will receive mercy from God. He has an infinite supply of mercy. It says in Ephesians 2.4 that God is rich in mercy. Let that thought be an encouragement to you that no matter what you have done, God is merciful, ready to forgive. 
in closing, I just I know we've covered a lot today. Let me encourage you to process this material during the week. And here is a suggestion. Take one beatitude that we have covered today and think and pray about it during the day. Have it be something that you think about during your prayer time. Allow those truths to soak into your heart and let the Lord change and transform you. Again, this is not for the spiritual elite. This is for every single person who has trusted Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this sermon that you have given to us. Amazing that how you can take a few words and speak so poignantly and powerfully to our hearts. You know us, you made us, and you know what we need to hear. And Lord, my prayer is that all of us would be, on one hand, undone by the Sermon on the Mount and these words, but also built up to know you. Father, may you be glorified. May you draw people to yourself, perhaps, if they've never come to know you for the first time. May they see that you are indeed a merciful God who wipes away all sin. If they will come to you on your terms, humbling themselves, trusting in Christ, not themselves. And Lord, we know that you are quick and ready to forgive. Lord, do a great work in your people, we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. amen.